The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from Acts 18, 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, be to Christ. Christ. Thanks, Brian. Uh, good morning, or I'm sorry, Brian, Kevin. I'm going to talk about Brian in my sermon later. That's Kevin, y'all. My friend Kevin Howard. <laughs> Scripture reader extraordinaire this morning. Um, Welcome, good to be with you all, uh, and uh, grateful to get to uh, stand up here and, and talk about the Scripture like I get to do most weeks. And today we're continuing in our series in the book of Acts, and uh, we've got a couple more messages, and then we'll transition into uh, Holy Week season from Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday, which uh, can't wait for that. I hope you're as eager as I am and thinking about the friends uh, that you might want to invite to be part of, of that uh, short season with us upcoming. But uh, as for today, uh, I'll start with a little anecdote that I've, I've shared once or twice before about Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was this um, very, uh, ended up being this very well-known uh, Welch preacher uh, and uh, he, you know, transitioned to a large church in England. And before that, though, uh, I want to tell you a little bit of a, about a mid-career pivot that he made. Because before he became a pastor, Lloyd-Jones was a prominent physician, uh, the kind who might, you know, today uh, be the doctor who works with residents uh, from Vanderbilt, uh, medical school and is doing all sorts of groundbreaking research and those sorts of things. So, so that was the kind of doctor that Lloyd-Jones was and uh, you know, ran in elite circles, had all the wealth and notoriety and everything else. And sometime mid-career, he experienced what he would describe as a call into the pastoral 
ministry, and uh, uh, his first call was actually to a blue-collar town uh, where um, the primary occupation was uh, fishermen and fisherwomen. And <clears throat> sometime later, some years later, uh, after he got uh, you know further along in his ministry, uh, a reporter, a news reporter, uh, approached him uh, because uh, his friends and colleagues in the medical profession uh, had essentially uh, distanced themselves from him. They, you know, they told him he's wasting his talent, he's wasting his life. Why are you leaving this this wonderful, prominent, you know, medical career uh, for the ministry? And so, this interviewer later on, several years later, said. Um, do you have any regrets? Did you have any re regrets when you, when you made that significant, unusual career pivot? And uh, he said, let me be clear. I gave up nothing and I gained everything. Now, I want to be clear. Lloyd-Jones was not saying that uh, being a doctor is a lesser profession than being a pastor. In fact, some people follow the call of God out of pastoral ministry into medicine. So it's not about that. As much as it is about following the call that God has placed on your life. This, uh, as Eugene Peterson described it, burning in your bones. Uh, I can't not do this thing. And for some of us, it's the ministry. For some of us, it's medical profession. For some of us, it's full-time parenting. There are all kinds of professions and callings. But something happened to Lloyd-Jones that made him willing to give up some stuff. Prestige, salary, big salary, all, all the things. And these are similar experiences as uh, a man a couple thousand years ago named Saul of Tarsus had. Because before he became Paul the Apostle, who we read about in passages like the one in front of us today, he was Saul of Tarsus, a young, uh, prominent, what you could call celebrity rabbi. Uh, he had uh, wealth, he had prestige, he had access to elite uh, social circles, uh, he had the equivalent of an Ivy League education and also trained under the most prominent rabbis, uh, namely a rabbi, a famous rabbi named Gamaliel. And looking back on the life that he gave up in order to become this, this itinerant preacher who sometimes had to go bivocational just to make ends meet, uh, he says in Philippians chapter 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So knowing Christ Jesus for him though, this is the interesting thing. Remember, he left a prestigious, prominent, wealthy, comfortable life to serve as this itinerant minister. And knowing Christ Jesus for him meant living hand to mouth, rejection from his own people, living a lonely itinerant life, uh, persecution at every turn, and eventually martyrdom for his faith. And yet he says, I gave up nothing, and I gained everything. What's that about? I think what the Lloyd-Jones story and, and the Apostle Paul's story do for us is they confront us with an important question. It's worth asking ourselves every now and then, and that is, what is so precious to us that we would be willing to hurt, suffer loss and pain in order to have it, in order to protect it? Maybe for some of us, it's the welfare of 
our loved ones. I'll do anything, I'll give up anything. If the people I love can thrive, flourish, be happy. Maybe it's a certain level of, of net worth or a certain quality of life or lifestyle. I'd give up just about anything in order to reach this level or this level. Uh, or maybe it's to make a name for oneself. Um, you know, just as long as I can become famous, as long as I can become widely celebrated uh, by uh, people who know me and, 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 and a lot more people who don't know me, as long as I can become a name, I'll give up anything in order to get there. What is it that we would be willing to hurt and suffer loss for and pain in order to have it or protect it? For Paul, here's what it was. According to verse 6, I would give anything to help other people keep blood off of their own heads. So the positive way of saying this is that I would do anything to help other people experience belief and belonging in Jesus Christ. And so what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is talk about what Paul gave up and what Paul gained and, and hopefully we'll be able to put two and two together and see how our stories intersect with his. First, what did he give up? Uh, what did Paul give up? He, what enabled Paul to say, I gave up nothing but gained everything, even though he gave up a whole lot? So he gave up a few things. One of the things he gave up was winning. Winning. Before, again, before Paul became a servant of Jesus Christ, he you know, he kind of lived out that, that, that lyric that we know from Freddie Mercury of Queen. He had fame and fortune and everything that goes with it. He was the champion of the world in his world. Now, scholars would, would, um, will and, and have for, for, for many years of history commented on the, this speech that the, the Apostle Paul gave that we talked about last week. When he went into another cultural epicenter called Athens, Greece... And he gave this speech that most scholars would say um, uh, reveal, reveals Paul as a master of culture, of rhetoric, and persuasion. It was a brilliant speech that he gave to the intellectuals at Athens, and yet the results, notably, were underwhelming. You may remember from last week's sermon that there were only two people named who converted to Christianity because of Paul's message and then just a handful of others but it says that most of the people there mocked him most of the people there mocked him and so what he does next it's here in the first verse is he leaves Athens and goes to another culture making city another city that exports influence because of of all the um you know the 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 world changing professions there goes to Corinth and this time, he doesn't lead with rhetorical flourish, some kind of impressive speech or demonstrating, you know, deep knowledge of, of, of cultural things. Instead, it's, instead, it says here that he changed his approach, that he occupied himself with the word of God, testifying that the Christ was Jesus. He just kept it very simple occupied himself with the word of God and testified that the Christ was Jesus. Uh, in his later letter to the Corinthian church, Paul describes uh, his ministry uh, when he first came to them to the Corinthians. And he said this, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, you know, the, the notable thing is that even after getting mocked, beaten up and knocked around a good bit for doing these things, for preaching the gospel, for following the call on his life, he just kept doing it. He kept going, like the Energizer bunny. Uh, or what is that battery commercial? You know, it takes a licking, keeps on ticking. That was Paul. So um, one of the things that, that keeps me um, somewhat healthy is that I work with a counselor on a fairly regular basis, and his name is Chip. And Chip, one day when we were, when we were having a conversation about the life of the heart and other such things, he says, I just want to affirm something for you. I don't know if you realize this. He says, I work with a lot of people, a lot of leaders and a lot of pastors, and I want you to know that your job is the hardest job in the world. And, and, and I've never forgotten that. And, and I, I realize that a, you know, a lot of things about pastoral ministry are challenging. I just don't know if I've ever felt like my job is the hardest job in the world. And, and so I'm, I'm just like, help me understand and so he goes on, and he's like, you know we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? And I'm like, yeah, I preached on Easter Sunday to an empty sanctuary staring at a camera. Of course I know what, we're in a pandemic. How did that feel? It felt terrible. It was horrible. And how are people responding to your pastor friends about, you know, regarding the political climate that we're in, regarding how they're, they're handling their churches during a pandemic, the decisions they're making, et cetera? I'm like, you know, the church I serve is pretty gracious, but, but a lot of pastors I know are, are, are feeling really beaten up by their people. And, you know, he, and he went on and just asked me all these anecdotal questions to kind of make the case out of my own mouth that it's kind of a hard job. And so he said, why do you do it? And I said, I can't not do it. That's why. I can't not. Like, even in a pandemic... I never thought about doing anything other than being a pastor. I had some hard moments, but, but I never thought about doing anything other than what I do. It's like uh, Luke Combs says in that song that he sings. Uh, how does it go? He says, I would be doing this if I wasn't doing this. In other words, if I didn't have the big stage and the big salary and the tour and, and the merch tables, if I didn't have all that, I'd still be trying to sing somewhere, even if it was in a bar sitting on an old bar stool to five people, because I can't not do this. I can't not be an artist. I, cannot, I can't not live out my call. Maybe this is why Isaiah, after, after you know, he, he, God calls him to pastor people and he loses 90% of the people on his first day, exit the building. And what's his answer to that? Here am I, Lord, send me. 11 of the 12 disciples died as martyrs because of the faith. So did the apostle Paul. The only one that didn't die as a martyr was John who died in prison on a remote island because of the message that he was preaching. Because they would be doing this even if they weren't doing it. They could not help but preach the gospel. You know, Paul, after much suffering, says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. It's a calling. 
You know, some of, we're, we're all called to different things. Like for my wife, we've got, we've got a 24-year-old and a 19-year-old, and she's still just as much of a mom as she was when they were two and three years old because she can't not be a mom. You know, thanks to some dear friends in this room, earlier uh, this year, we, we, we got treated to a Rolling Stones concert. And I just sat there as I watched these, you know, almost 80-year-old guys prance around the stage and just think, what does Mick Jagger have to go through between concerts in order to be able to run around and sing for two and a half hours like that at his age? Like, but they can't not do it. They could have retired decades ago, but they can't stop. God puts something in the heart of a called person where, where no matter what the cost is, their answer is, I gave up nothing, really, and I've gained everything. There's just nothing quite like being right in the pocket of where God has created you to be. So he gave up winning, and that was fine. He also gave up wealth. You know, prior to being an apostle, he was full-time clergy. He was a rising star in the world of, of young Jewish rabbis. But here, as an apostle, he comes into the city of Corinth, and it says that he meets a woman named Priscilla and a man called Aquila, and they owned a tent-making business. And it says that Paul stayed with them. In other words, he couldn't afford his own place to live, and he worked because he needed something in addition to ministry to supplement the deficit so that he could afford to live in a city like Corinth. He had to have a, a side hustle in order to make it work, and he never complained about it. Never once complained about it to make ends meet. And, and so this got me thinking as I was preparing this week. There, there, there are a few people in the world that I respect and admire more than bivocational pastors. Um, so we were, we were down at the beach a few years ago. And um, I don't know if Brian and Jenny Lark Lindman are in here uh, with, their, with their girls. Um, but they were there as well, and we, we all decided to do what I encourage you to do if you're on vacation. Find a church. Don't, 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 don't take a Sunday off from worship. Your soul is made for that seven-day rhythm, which includes being with the people of God every Sunday. And so if you're on vacation somewhere, if you're out of town, find a place to worship. And so we found a place. And the Lindman family and the Sauls family that day made up about half of the congregation. There were about... 12 to 15 church members, literally, and they were warm-hearted people. You know, they saw us, and we're like, you know, we were, they, they came right after us, not hard to spot a new person in a church of 12 to 15 people. And the preacher, we come to find out, was a guy that I went to seminary with. And he's been faithfully pastoring this church. He actually gave one of the strongest sermons that I've heard, most solid, well-researched, carefully put together message. I could tell that he must have put, you know, 15 hours into it at least. It was so strong that I, I emailed him. I said, look, there are like three things that you said and your take on this passage. I'd love to, you know, get your manuscript if you have it. And he graciously sent it to me. So this guy named James Calderazzo, who pastors a handful of locals and tourists who come in and out. 
that's his, that's his job that he basically makes nothing for, but he works in full-time real estate. Uh, it's kind of his tent that he makes in order to be able to do it because he would be doing this even if he wasn't doing this, right? So Paul was willing to give up you know, wealth and wealth opportunities in order to follow the call of God on his life. You know, there's, there's, this, there's this country song out there, this other country song out there. Sorry, I'm kind of into lyrics today. Um, where it says, uh, do you do what you love and call it work? You guys familiar with that? You buy dirt. Um, do what you love and call it work. Like, like those who are able to find that place where you get to do what you love and, and somebody says, your job is the hardest job in the world. And you're like, I don't think it is. Like, this is what I'm made for. This is who I am. The other thing he gave up in order to follow the call of God was community. You know, Paul's not a married man. And so his fellow Christians are his family. The problem with his calling is he's always having to uproot. As soon as he falls in love with a community of people and they fall in love with him, he's got to go to the next place and start over again. And then again, and then again, and then again. It's not because he's the kind of guy who doesn't attach well. As we see, you know, when he leaves in the book of Acts, when he leaves the church at Ephesus to go to another town to start over again, it says that he weeps and they weep because they're going to be separated. He writes this uh, to the church at Thessalonica. He says these words. He describes his separation from them as, as if he is being torn away from brothers with an eager, great desire to see them face to face. But it gets, it gets even more... Um, it gets even more powerful, this, this, the, what, what this guy lost in terms of community. Because when he, when he became a Christian, he lost all of his childhood friends, all the guys he went to school with, all, all the people that he you know, went to rabbi training with. Suddenly they're, you know, they're stiff-arming him. They don't want to have anything to do with him. Some of them are mocking him. Some of them are beating him up in public. And they're certainly canceling him. Okay? Like he didn't just get emotionally attacked, you guys. He got physically beaten. Is much less fragile than our safe spaces in our American institutions. Where, where, where it's appalling if somebody even challenges our, our ideas. I mean, are we really that fragile? Are we really that insecure about what we believe that we can't bear somebody challenging what we believe because we really don't believe it? Paul was willing to get beaten up and killed because he was so deeply convinced that this is true and that this is everlasting. And so as he's being attacked by his childhood buddies and, and, and his new friends around him, no doubt, are saying, hey, figure out a way to retaliate, right? And Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, he's like, you know what? These people who can't stand me because I am with Jesus now, I can't stop loving them. I can't stop loving them any more than I can stop preaching the gospel. He says, in fact, if it were possible, I would give up my own salvation so that they could know Christ. He gave up a lot in terms of community. But what did Paul gain? Very quickly, a handful of things. Number one, even though he lost some community, he also gained more companions. Companions. 
You know, the same way that God saw Adam, you know, this, this isolated man who's living alone, and, and, and God's first answer to that was, was to give him Eve. And Adam responds, you know, she is flesh of my flesh, she is bone of my bones. But Paul, again, he was never married, and so what does God give to him? A spiritual family. You know, we see just about everywhere he goes, there are people that God sends to show up for Paul. Here is Priscilla and Aquila, also Silas and Timothy, whom later Paul would call a son in the faith. He was so tethered in heart to this young man. He closes, you notice if you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, most of them he closes with lists of names. You know, greet so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. He's got this affection. He knows people's stories. He's invested, and they're invested in him because he understands that the church is his significant other. And it's easier, possibly, for a single man to recognize this. That it's sink or swim if I don't find community, right? But even married couples notice eventually that our marriage is not enough to carry our marriage. That we need people that I need this person and this person and this person to draw the beautiful, wonderful things out of you that I'm not able to, even though you're my spouse. So that I can get more of you, I have to share you. We're, we're communal people. And so God makes sure that he gets more companions. He also makes sure that he gets material provision. Two ways. Number one, through meaningful work. Again, He's working with his hands, making tents to help make ends meet. And what's really wonderful about this is Paul never says, you know, I, I kind of experienced a setback in my career. I had to go back to working with my hands. I had to go back to making less money. I had to go back to being less famous, less important. He never says this. Because he understands. This is something Missy Wallace said to me. Missy's the founder of our, our, uh, the, the institute, the Faith and Work Institute we started out of Christ Pres a few years ago called the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work. So Missy had this keen observation. She said, did you ever think about the fact that Jesus worked 18 years with his hands and he worked three years as a minister? He spent six times more time vocationally working blue collar than he did preaching his own name. There's something in there you know, that, that, that should convince us on some level that any endeavor that, that puts creative and restorative goodness into the world is just as much God's work as my work is. But the other way that God provides is through generous support, and it's alarming where that support comes from. Remembering that, that Corinth is a city of influence, it's a city of movers and shakers, it's a city of a lot of wealth, like crazy amounts of wealth. And it says that Silas and Timothy arrived to Paul from Macedonia with funds given by the Macedonians to support Paul in his work preaching the gospel to the Corinthians. Here's a significant detail. The Macedonians were poor. 
You have a community of poor people funding mission and ministry to rich people. Paul writes to the Corinthians, lest they fail to appreciate their economically strapped brothers and sisters. We want you to know, Corinthians, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They gave beyond their means and they begged us earnestly for the favor of being able to give so that you could hear the gospel. There's no victim speak here from the impoverished Macedonians. There's no resentment toward the wealthier Corinthians. Here you have, I don't know if you caught this. It's taken me 25 years to see this, of reading the Bible, 25, 30 years of reading the Bible to see this. You have poor people begging not for money, but for the opportunity to share with rich people. And we say, oh, that's remarkable. You know that happens in every American church all over the place every single week where teenagers tithe on their babysitting money and entry-level workers faithfully give a proportion of their income to the ministry of the church and single mothers do the same to fund the preaching of the gospel for millionaires who give nothing. Let that sink in for a second. Is that, conv- is that the least bit convicting? It's happening in this church. It's happening in every church in the wealthiest nation in the world. I was talking to an accountant recently. He said, you would be alarmed. You know, he says, I go, I go through these tax returns every single year, and the first things I do is I go to the itemized giving section. And would it surprise you, Pastor, to know that it's the people who don't have much who claim the itemized giving because they give so much, and it's the people who have everything who don't give jack because their money's got them around the neck. This is what's happening here. Paul's saying to this narcissistic, insanely wealthy, self-serving, all about me, all about project self, city called Corinth, you know how the gospel came to you. Poor people made it happen. So don't you dare look down your snooty nose at people with less than you as if you or a self-made person. There's no such thing as a self-made person. Well, I worked hard. Well, who gave you the will to work? Well, I went through, you know, I did my education. Well, who paid for your education? Oh, my daddy did. Well, who gave your daddy the ability to pay for your education? It all goes back to the one who owns everything. It's a call to humility. So I got a race to the finish line here. You know, John Stott described Corinth as the vanity fair of the Roman Empire. Sin City, Las Vegas on steroids. And God says to Paul, don't worry, I know it looks like these people are going to be unreachable, like the Athenians were, but they're not. And he says to him, I have many 
people in this city who are already my people. All you got to do is cast the net out and I'm going to put some fish in the net. You're going to pull them in. There's going to be a church here. And they're going to be a hot mess of a church. But they're people that I love and they're mine. Here's the wonderful thing here. Remember, Paul dialed down his skill set in a city that prides itself on its skill. You've got the smartest guy in the room speaking the plain truth plainly. So much so that in one of the Corinthian letters, we see that some of the Corinthians are, are accusing Paul of being a little bit boring. He's like, this is why. This is, this is why I came to you in this way, because you make such an idol out of the spectacular. You make such an idol out of the experience and the wow factor. Isn't it wonderful to know that the pressure is off, that the church does not have to create wow moments in order for God to work in people's lives? And in fact, sometimes those wow moments actually get in the way of the work that God wants to do. All we have to do is open the Bible, say what the Bible says with an understanding that it all comes from and points back to Jesus Christ, and we've done our job. The real wow factor is what happens when God's people receive the word, go out into the world, and live a life that appears remarkable. Because you end up being the kids who spot the lonely kids and make sure they don't sit alone in the dining hall. Or you end up being the boss who cares enough about her employees that you learn their life stories and you ask how they're doing really and you demonstrate compassion and you pay them well and you care for them because of the ordinary goodness and grace you receive from Christ. You become a wow kind of person to the people around you. You become one of those artists who doesn't just write songs to make a buck, you write songs that bring redemption into people's lives and imagination. Because you've received the word and you've received what Christ has to offer, which is what we uh, now do as Dr. McGowan uh, comes to serve us uh, the Lord's Supper. Again, friends, ordinary bread, an ordinary cup, it's kind of cheap wine, I'll, I'll warn you, and, and cheap <laughs> Grape juice, but, but that's the whole point. Jesus, the king of the universe, came plain and simple. With dirty feet, no money, no prestige. He just divested himself of all of that in order to pour into us so that he could become the poor man who picks up the tab for you and for me. Thanks be to God.